Welcome to Mysteries, Myths, and More. I'm your narrator, Joyce Keller Walsh. My intention is to use this podcast to tell a story each month, sometimes fiction, sometimes not, that I hope you'll find interesting, engaging, and provocative. Welcome to Episode 15, Epidemiology and COVID-19. This podcast was originally scheduled to be a conversation with Peter Wong and his friend, Professor Warren Dolan, as a follow-up to podcast number 14 last month. However, as I record this in early April 2020 for uploading in May, the novel coronavirus has spread throughout Massachusetts. Consequently, we've delayed our interview to some later date when there is no danger of contracting the disease. If I sound a little different to you, it's because I'm recording this podcast by telephone with Jordan Rich of Chart Productions at his home studio, after which Dan Tebow at Fast Twitch Media will upload it to the internet platforms. I have worked with them and Jordan's business partner, Ken Carberry, since my initial podcast in March of 2019, and am so appreciative of everything they do. I don't know whether this outbreak of this coronavirus will be over by the time you hear this. But right now, with no therapies and no vaccine available, most of us non-essential personnel can only try to avoid exposure by staying at home. As a result, many businesses have closed in the United States and most other countries with a high incidence of the disease. And many employees have lost their jobs with drastic personal and economic consequences. It sometimes feels as though we're at the mercy of a relentless invader. But our defenders, the real heroes of this battle, are the armies of first responders, healthcare workers, and support personnel who are, quite literally, putting themselves at mortal risk to care for the sick, and they are doing it with limited resources. They, as well as the workers who keep the supply chains operational, are deserving of our deepest gratitude. In the U.S., As in many other countries, the numbers of those infected with COVID-19 and the heartbreaking numbers of deaths are increasing daily. At this writing, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, estimates over 600,000 confirmed and presumptive cases in the United States, with more than 25,000 deaths. The World Health Organization, WHO, estimates nearly 2 million cases globally, with more than 100,000 deaths. Because not everyone has been tested, the number of those infected and possibly recovered without confirmation is an underestimate. It is difficult to conceive what the number of cases and deaths there will be, even from week to week, until therapies and vaccines are globally available. Meanwhile, we are experiencing the tragic and frightening loss of loved ones and friends without knowing when it will stop. As fearful as this virus is, Imagine how terrifying it must have been during the pandemics of the past. During, for instance, the Spanish flu, the H1N1 virus, which didn't originate in Spain, but which country published the first reports of the illness. It is estimated that some 500 million people were infected worldwide from 1918 through 1919, with as many as 50 million, that is 10% of infected people, dying from the viral disease. There was no vaccine at that time and no pharmaceuticals for effective treatment. The measures to avoid infection relied mainly on the same ones recommended now. 
physical distancing, good hygiene, quarantining the sick. Eventually, the Spanish flu died out because there were no more hosts. People either died, recovered and became immune, or successfully avoided infection. The 14th century bubonic plague, which was caused by a bacterium rather than a virus, is also estimated to have killed 50 million people at 30 to 60% of those infected, or about one-third of the European population. The first wave of the Black Death lasted 25 years, with successive waves occurring until the cause of the disease, the bacterium Yersinia pestis, was discovered 500 years later. After the bacterium was identified in 1894, separately by Drs. Alexander Yersin and Kitasato Shibasaburo, a French physician, Dr. Paul-Louis Simon, traced the route of transmission from rats to infected fleas to humans. In 1665, 1666, nearly one quarter of the population of London died from the bubonic plague, caused by the same pathogen as the Black Death, Y. pestis. A descriptive account of that perilous time is given by Daniel Defoe, author of such books as Robinson Crusoe and Moll Flanders. In 1722, he published A Journal of the Plague Year, a novel based on the Great Plague of London, in which he gives a fictional but historically credible account of the course of the disease. He writes, It was about the beginning of September 1664 that I, among the rest of my neighbors, heard an ordinary discourse that the plague was returned again in Holland, for it had been very violent there, in particular at Amsterdam and Rotterdam in the year 1663. Whither, they say, it was brought, some said from Italy, others from the Levant, among some goods which were brought home by their turkey fleet. Others said it was brought from Candia, others from Cyprus. It mattered not from whence it came, but all agreed it was coming to Holland again. And from Europe, the plague traveled to London. The author gives the number of burials per week by parish and observes their increase over time and by season. Defoe has his narrator question whether the deadly sickness is a divine instrument, and he concludes that it is. In that vein, the narrator decides to cast himself entirely upon the goodness and protection of the Almighty. Given that, however, Defoe goes on to describe the many countermeasures that city officials take to contain the plague, including banning public gatherings, instituting greater sanitary measures, effective burying of the dead, quarantining homes with infected residents, all of which indicate knowledge of the extreme infectiousness of the disease, even if the vectors of infection were not yet known. With limited knowledge of medicine or virology, Defoe tries to understand how and where the disease is transmitted and who are the most vulnerable. He concludes, interestingly, quote, that it was not the sick people only from whom the plague was immediately received by others that were sound, but the well. That is, one could get the plague from someone who has not yet had the symptoms. Despite the fact that Defoe attributes the origins and ending of the plague to divine intervention, he attributes its propagation to natural means. Thus, it might be argued, because of his fact-based observations, that he was a nascent epidemiologist, 
The term epidemiology is derived, of course, from epidemic. COVID-19, so named by WHO, comes from the first two letters of corona, C-O, plus the first two letters of virus, V-I, then the D for disease, COVID, and the 19 from the first appearance of the disease in Wuhan, China, in 2019, hence COVID-19. Let me preface this by saying I'm not an epidemiologist. Although, with some exceptions, I have spent most of my career in the Department of Epidemiology at the Harvard School of Public Health, now called the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. I began as a research assistant to the department chairman, calculating at that time statistics on the association of radiation and cancer. In turn, I became a project data manager for a multi-country study of breast cancer. And lastly, the managing editor of an international journal of cancer epidemiology. I've had the privilege of working with many of the exceptional faculty and staff of that department, and in particular, three notable epidemiologists, Dr. Brian McMahon, chairman of the department, Dr. Demetrius Trikopoulos, the subsequent department chairman and also chair of of a similar department in the University of Athens, and Dr. Richard Munson, professor in the departments of epidemiology and environmental health, as well as editor of the journal Cancer Causes and Control after Drs. McMahon and Trikopoulos. Although epidemiology as an independent discipline is said to have begun in the mid-1900s, the first credited founder of epidemiology was John Snow, a physician born in England in 1813. During the period of 1846 to 1860, there was a worldwide pandemic of cholera, a highly lethal intestinal disease that causes diarrhea and vomiting. And in 1854, there was an outbreak in the Soho district of London where Dr. Snow lived and practiced. He observed that the cluster of cases, with more than 600 people dying from the disease, was located specifically at or around a particular locale, Broad Street. At that time, it was commonly thought that the disease was conveyed by breathing bad air, called the miasmatic theory, miasma meaning basically a malodorous night air. Snow, on the contrary, believed that cholera was caused by contaminated water. In London in the mid-1800s, there were no residential sewage or water lines so that people got their water from communal sources, for example, the town pump. And because people dumped their sewage into rivers or open cesspools, Snow deduced that that contamination worked its way into the water supply. And because of the specific location of the cases and deaths, his suspicion fell upon the Broad Street water pump. How Dr. Snow came to this conclusion is the result of his identifying who the cases were, mapping where they lived, and asking where they obtained their drinking water. He also tracked those people who did not get cholera, such as inmates of a local prison which had its own drinking water supply. The subjects who didn't get cholera became a natural control group. Case control studies have since become the backbone of many epidemiologic investigations. Although Snow couldn't identify the specific source of the contamination from the Broad Street water pump, he recommended to the town officials that the pump handle be removed so that people could not drink that water. The administrators reluctantly did so. But even though cholera in Soho declined afterwards, 
the town officials still did not believe there was any evidence for the association of cholera with water contamination. And there it would have stayed had not an adversary of the sewage theory tried to prove Dr. Snow wrong. Minister Henry Whitehead believed that the Broad Street cholera was an intervention by God. In his zeal, Reverend Whitehead interviewed residents of the area expecting to refute Snow. Instead, he found a woman who confessed that she had washed her baby's diapers in water that she then dumped into a leaking cesspool just three feet from the pump water. To his credit, Whitehead published his findings in a magazine confirming Snow's theory. It took several more years for a German physician to identify the actual bacterium, Vibrio cholerae, that causes cholera. Dr. Robert Koch, that's K-O-C-H, which might have been pronounced Koch or Kuch, I'll stick with Koch after my ninth grade science teacher, demonstrated that the bacterial disease, although infectious, was not contagious person to person, and that scrupulous sanitation would prevent cholera from occurring. Had it not been for Snow's empirical methods, the ultimate eradication of cholera might have taken much longer and cost many more lives. In recognition of his contribution to epidemiology, there is today a John Snow Society at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. However, there are competing claimants for the founding of epidemiology, one of whom was Dr. William Farr, that's F-A-R-R, another British physician born just a few years earlier than Dr. Snow. In the 1830s, Farr wrote numerous papers on medical statistics, and in 1864, he published a report on the statistically high number of deaths among coal miners in Cornwall. Dr. Farr concluded these deaths, mainly among middle-aged males, were due to pulmonary disease from that occupation. The association of a particular occupation with a particular disease or diseases by gender and age based on statistical analysis was new. And some 200 years before that, in 1661, a non-physician, in fact a haberdasher dealing in men's clothing named John Grant, published a treatise, Natural and Political Observations Made Upon the Bills of Mortality. He observed that deaths, mortality rates, were higher in males, although illnesses, morbidity rates, were fewer. Among other things, he found that there was a high mortality rate among children and that rickets was epidemic. The treatise, however, appears to have been his last major public health publication. His clothing business was destroyed in the Great Fire of London in 1666, forcing him into bankruptcy. He died eight years later at age 53, unheralded and destitute. Ave atque vale. Hail and farewell, John Grant. Why did this two-century development of epidemiology occur specifically in Great Britain? Most historians attribute it to good record-keeping by parish and county registers, as well as parliamentary proceedings in the Lord's archives. However, one might ask if this attribution of the beginnings of epidemiology to British investigators is a somewhat Western-centric view. I'm not familiar enough with ancient history and literature to know whether some keen observers in the Pharaonic and Islamic civilizations, for instance, or the Roman or Greek eras, or in Asian and African dynasties, 
made epidemiologic association with diseases in their own cultures. In many ways, after all, epidemiology began as an exercise in logic until it became a methodology. Initially, the field of epidemiology was defined as a study of the distribution of disease in a human population, primarily incidence and prevalence as it was applied to infectious diseases. However, over time, epidemiologic methods were applied to other conditions. There is, of course, cancer epidemiology, which was in great part fostered by Dr. Brian McMahon. But there is now pharmacoepidemiology, veterinary epidemiology, molecular epidemiology, epidemiology of occupational safety and health, and more. Not only are incidents and prevalence studied, but also in the case of communicable diseases, the transmission, conditions, and outcomes of the disease and subjects. Methods of study differ between infectious diseases, such as bacterial cholera and viral COVID-19, and non-infectious conditions, such as cancer, which may result from genetic causes, dietary causes, and non-communicable exposures, including, for example, tobacco smoking, radiation, industrial hazards, etc. In investigating an infectious disease, one may look at a sequence of exposure, by whatever means, to the bacterium or viral agent, then infection through some incubation period, to the illness from first symptoms, to degrees of progression, then, depending on intervention, to degrees of outcome. In the case of COVID-19, the time from exposure to infection appears to be rapid, then infection to illness, evident by greater or lesser symptoms, appears to be a matter of days, with the illness then having several possible outcomes from non-fatal to fatal, depending on certain variables. Alternately, in investigating a non-infectious disease, breast cancer, for example, the sequence may be susceptibility, where the agent may be genetic or acquired or the interaction of both, then some potential latency period, sometimes years, to diagnosis, then some potential latency, sometimes years, depending on treatment, to outcome. Going from the course of a disease in an individual to some larger aggregate population is more involved. The numbers of people exposed or susceptible may be difficult to determine. The latency periods, if any, may also be difficult to determine, may vary, and may, in the case of non-infectious conditions, take a long time to become evident. As for treatment and potential outcomes, they too can be variable, and each disease runs its own course. So you can see that quantifying all these steps can be complicated, and there are lots of statistics involved, assessing risk and probabilities, confounding factors, and modeling the behavior of the disease. What epidemiology does not do is what Dr. Koch did in laboratory experiments. Nor, generally speaking, do epidemiologists do what virologists and geneticists or chemists do. Neither are epidemiologists themselves usually responsible for implementing their findings and recommendations. It is principally public health officers and physicians who guide us through an epidemic, but their recommendations are continually being informed by epidemiologists who are assessing the demographic distribution of cases, where they are occurring, among which populations, younger versus older, healthy versus compromised, and the incubation period, etc. What has always interested me most in epidemiology is the disease detective aspect. Epi, for short, asks the same initial six questions that journalists and mystery writers like me ask. Who, what, when, where, 
why, and how, although not necessarily in that order. Finding patient zero or vector zero in the case of infectious diseases or precursor or precursors in the case of non-infectious diseases may not always be the starting point. In the case of the origin of COVID-19, however, the who and what did come first. In December 2019, ophthalmologist Dr. Li Wenliang observed seven patients who presented in Wuhan Central Hospital, China, with the same pattern of atypical pneumonia. He became concerned about this manifestation and informed his medical school classmates on an Internet site that there appeared to be a new respiratory disease. His alarm, unfortunately, was not heeded. Instead, he was reprimanded by local authorities for making false statements on the Internet and, quote, disturbing the social order, unquote. Meanwhile, 33-year-old Dr. Lee had already contracted the virus. He died five weeks later in the Central Hospital on February 7, 2020. After the who and what, we learned the when and why of the virus. Then came the where. Where did it originate? It has been said to have come from the Hunan Seafood Wholesale Market, or so-called wet market, which linked the patients Dr. Lee first observed. The other possibility being considered is that the virus may have originated in a virology research lab in the Wuhan area and that it spread through accidental contamination. Even if true, we may never have confirmation of this theory. What we do know is that virologists identified the DNA of the virus and correlated it with bats. Certain species of bats are known to have reservoirs of coronaviruses, which do not affect the bats, but can be highly contagious and often lethal to humans. The genes of bat flu viruses are thought to be compatible with human flu viruses, and it happens that bats are sometimes slaughtered for consumption on site in the Wuhan market. The severe acute respiratory syndrome, SARS, for example, a coronavirus epidemic in 2002 and 2003, that affected over 8,000 people, killing nearly 800, was found to be a bat-borne disease. But sometimes there are intermediate hosts in the transmission of the bat viruses to humans. These intermediaries may include pigs, horses, and wildlife, including monkeys and pangolins, scaly anteaters of all things. The bats, fruit-eating bats, for example, may shed bodily fluids or excrement onto other animals, onto food that other animals eat, and those animals then convey the virus to humans. The questions being asked are, was COVID-19 derived from bats in the Wuhan market? If so, did the virus pass directly from bats to humans, or did it jump from bats to an intermediate host, then to the afflicted patients? So far, we don't know the answers. But over a year ago, the so-called Batwoman of China, virologist Xi Zhengli, warned of these pathogens and the impending problem of new viral pandemics, whatever the route of transmission. I am reminded of War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, published in 1897. In his story, Martians failed in their attempt to eradicate the human population. How? H.G. Wells, who had a Bachelor of Science in Zoology and studied biology, explains that it was pathogen. Quote, These germs of disease have taken toll on humanity since the beginning of things. 
taken toll of our pre-human ancestors since life began here. But by virtue of this natural selection of our kind, we have developed resisting power. To no germs do we succumb without a struggle. And to many, those that cause putrefaction in dead matter, for instance, our living frames are altogether immune. But there are no bacteria in Mars, and directly these invaders arrived, directly they drank and fed, our microscopic allies began to work their overthrow. Already, when I watched them, they were there. Already, when I watched them, they were irrevocably doomed, dying and rotting even as they went to and fro. It was inevitable. By the toll of a billion deaths, man has bought his birthright of the earth, and it is his against all comers. It would still be his with the Martians ten times as mighty as they are, for neither do men live nor die in vain. However fascinating Wells' insight is, it's cold comfort to us who are paying this current evolutionary toll. The saving grace, if one can call that, is that COVID-19 seems not to be as lethal as the Spanish flu, which may be attributable to our more advanced medical system a century later. But fatality is not the only measure of the impact of the disease. The great numbers of sick people are currently overwhelming our hospitals, affecting not only patient care, but the caregivers as well. Then, even after recovery from the illness, the virus may cause damage to the heart and lungs in some patients. And even if the disease subsides in summer in the northern hemisphere, it may cycle back again in cooler weather with equal or greater force. And if the virus is seasonal, countries in the southern hemisphere, including those in South America and Africa, may not yet have had peak incidence. At this juncture, it is clear that we don't know all there is to be known about the course and effects of COVID-19. We can only hope that we may soon have effective therapies and that eventually a vaccine will be developed. Meanwhile, we will need to help each other throughout these difficult times. I will have already recorded my June podcast at the same time as I recorded this one, so I hope you'll return to listen to podcast number 16. It's a heartwarming description of another forgotten life, this time in her own, often humorous words. If you like this podcast, please download and subscribe. It's free, and you'll find it on your favorite directories such as Apple, Google, Stitcher, TuneIn, and more. To learn more about me and my books, go to JoyceWalsh.com.